there. So if you have a question, please go up to the microphone, identify yourself, and um, you're allowed one question. And please keep your introductory comments brief. We may allow you two questions if they're closely related. Uh, so the, again, the subject that we're considering today is can private land conservation maintain biodiversity and healthy watersheds in Alberta's foothills? So I'll ask Justin Thompson to come back to the microphone. Thank you, Cheryl. Hi. Hi, thank you very much for your talk. I'm Bev Mendel Atherstone. I saw Cheryl eyeing me when she said only one question. Anyway, <clears throat> because you're talking so much about wildlife, wildlife habitat, and the health of the, the whole environment, including our watersheds, um, I wonder how closely your association is uh, working with the Y2Y movement, Yellowstone to the Yukon, to create that corridor for wildlife uh, through the US and Canada? It's a, it's a good question. We, I guess the work that we do, we try and fit into uh, other efforts that are contributing to the big picture. We don't sort of work um, directly with Y2Y um, in the sense that I overlap with them in a lot of our conversations with the not-for-profit community. Um, but, you know, specifically we haven't got any sort of funding uh, through Y2Y or other organizations to do conservation easements. However, and that's not a knock to Y2Y, I'm just saying to, for clarity, because there's, there's some interesting um, beliefs out there that there's all sorts of U.S. money funneled into Alberta to do nefarious things in conservation. And uh, I don't know if anybody in this room sort of shares those views, but I'm sensitive to that because we don't get a bunch of nefarious U.S. money to do our work. I, I would like to get more money to do our work, and if it was American money and it was from the right place, I probably wouldn't say no to it either, but um, we, we uh, so that's why I wanted to address that. But we do have some of our conservation easements that are directly contributing to that connectivity piece on the big picture in the Rocky Mountains, specifically on Highway 3. So west of Lundbrek, from Lundbrek to the BC border is one of the biggest threats to long-term connections north-south in the Rocky Mountains. And we have several conservation easements right up to Highway 3 and then north and south of the highway. Um, in these critical connections, and actually my family property, this, I kind of lucked into this, the highest collision zone, if you're all driving west to, to Fernie or where you're going, the highest collision zone for wildlife is actually just past that windmill, past Lundbrek Falls, at a place called Rock Creek. And that's where the most animals are hit by cars. And it happens that our property is just south of there, and Sulz has been able to do conservation easements both north and south of the highway at Rock Creek, with the hope that long term, it will stay as an open movement area. Alberta Transportation is hoping to put an underpass there, which would help with the collisions. So encourage Alberta Transportation. South region here in Lethbridge has been really good at, at trying to move that forward. Um, so we are contributing directly to that vision, but we're not, I guess, um, partnering directly on that, on our land conservation piece. Cody, hi. Hey, Cody Spencer. Um, you mentioned the Nature Conservancy of Canada earlier, mm. another land trust. Uh, does work nationwide. Um, I'm interested to, to hear your response on how SALTS differs from the Nature Conservancy. Uh, maybe it's related to the fact that you're a very locally based uh, organization. Um, but what, what advantages do, say, landowners have 
coming to SALTS uh, as opposed to the Nature Conservancy, who's done, by the way, a lot of great work mm. preserving the Waterton Park front and elsewhere from residential development. It's not a competition, but what advantages does SALTS provide? Sure, that's, that's actually a really good question, and it's one I get a lot. And one of the questions is, why do we need more than one land trust? We have the Nature Conservancy. Isn't this just creating confusion and making the, the, the landscape too busy? I guess the, the, the first and most important thing is that SALTS was formed specifically by ranchers um, with the idea that part of our work uh, and the way we do our work is grounded in understanding of, of the land management by ranchers. And I think NCC has actually come a long way in that respect as well. I think that they're getting uh, much, much better at understanding how to work with communities and with ranchers and they've actually made a lot of effort in that respect. Um, I think that the other difference, I guess, is that we do focus on different things. So we have a mandate specifically to try and help keep people ranching. And because NCC is a national organization, they have a focus on species at risk and critical habitat and those sorts of things. And so we might look at slightly different properties when it comes to what we do conservation easements on. And also, any one organization can only do so many projects. And uh, so NCC and SALTS are often working on the same landscape but on different projects. So we might do a smaller parcel, a quarter section, a half section, um, that NCC might decide is not, doesn't fit with their mandate. And so we're helping to put that puzzle together. And in terms of advantages, I guess I'd say that SALTS, as a, as a smaller locally based organization, we're very nimble. And because our board is ranchers and I you know, have been involved in cattle, I think we really understand the challenges that people who are working on the land deal with when they're trying to manage their property and conserve it. So that would be sort of what I would think is the advantage. Thanks, Cody. Okay, my name is Mark Edel. I'm just wondering, to what extent will these easements protect the wildlife? Obviously, there will be conflicts, and you're going to have, for instance, a herd of elk coming and competing with your cattle, or some predators will come and get your uh, calves. So is there any commitment on these easements to tolerate some of this, or all of it? <laughs> yeah, that's, that's, a, that's a very good question, difficult question. Our easements actually don't specify wildlife management issues. We very much focus on the grasslands will remain maintained, the native forests will, will remain intact, the riparian areas will remain intact and be managed. But in terms of the wildlife management, we specifically say, and this is probably part of our, our ranching foundation, that it's ultimately the landowner and provincial wildlife officials who make those decisions. And there, there are issues with, with wildlife. I mean, I've I have a herd of 100 plus elk on my place almost every winter and they like to hang out in one spot and they like to eat it down to nothing. And even if I leave some, some grass there after the cows have been there, they still like to eat it down to nothing all winter long. And so that's actually in some ways not good for the conservation easement either. My grasslands by a combination of, of cattle grazing and those elk who like to hang out there uh, may actually be negatively impacting the grasslands. So that's a very long-winded answer to your question, which is no. We don't, we don't dictate wildlife management. And when it comes to things like, we're preserving habitat for large carnivores, like grizzly bears and wolves and cougars, but at the end of the day, how a landowner decides to manage those uh, will be based on the law and provincial regulations. Although most of our landowners are very, very sympathetic, and a lot of them encourage wildlife. Uh, I'm Kathleen Clements, and uh, my question was, is there a need for, and, and can you speak to, uh, you talk about engaging the city of Lethbridge in discussions. What about the 
Lethbridge County and the SMRID. Can you specify what the SMRID is? Uh, oh, St. Mary's River Irrigation District. Right, yes, sorry. My yeah. apologies, yeah. yeah. The um, support you look for that from them. Most certainly. And I, I think around this issue of water, and the people here with Old Man Watershed Council could speak much more eloquently to this than I can, but we really do need to engage the irrigation districts, the counties, the city, um, because we all rely on that. And if we can continue to have a more consistent, clean flow of water that doesn't run off as quickly, that's going to benefit everybody. And so I think that's the hope that I have is that we can start, I mean, OWC has already initiated a lot of these conversations. But the next question is, is what's the next step in terms of the private land conservation as it relates to water? How do we support that? How do we fund that? How are we strategic about that? And so, yeah, I could see the irrigation district saying, hey, Salts, if you protect a piece of land that is going to help us as an irrigation district long term in terms of water conservation, let's partner on that. Let's work together. Um, so I'm very interested in, in those kind of partnerships, but have not had those conversations yet. Hi. My name is Gerhard Hartmann. In part, the success of your organization was based will be based on a perception, a public perception. The success of your organization will be based in part on the perception that the public has about you. Fundamental to that is how big is your annual budget and where does the money come from? I'm really glad you, sorry. I'm really glad you asked that question. Um, because again, back to some of those theories or concerns about where our money comes from. Um, for the first about 15 years of SALT's uh, time as an organization, one of the only tools that we had to provide a landowner was a charitable receipt when they made a, a gift of ecological, an ecological donation of, of the easement through a federal tax program, through Environment Canada, and sanctioned by CRA. And so we couldn't bring any cash to the table, and for all of our staff time, our appraisals, our legal work, all the negotiations, all, everything we did, travel, we had to go and raise that from various sources, foundations, individuals, and it really, really limited what we could do in terms of the acres we pr could protect. Five years ago, the provincial government in Alberta, prior to this current government, but this current government has continued it, which is great, the government of Alberta, when they actually sold off pieces of crown land, a lot of these were in northern Alberta on the oil sands, someone in the government said, if we're gonna actually sell off public land, we have to reinvest some of that back into conserving land elsewhere. So essentially an offset. And so they created this fund called the Land Stewardship Fund, under the Land Stewardship Act, where they said, if the government needs to buy back a piece of crown land that's critical, we can use money to do that. Or if an organization like SALTS or NCC is able to protect a piece of land that meets our criteria, critical wildlife habitat, grasslands, critical corridors, they can apply for money to fund that easement. And so that just happened five years ago. And, and as a result of that fund, the Land Stewardship Fund, we've gone from protecting about 800 acres a year to 2,000 acres a year. And, and we're increasing that more and more every year because that fund helps to actually cover our costs, but also if a landowner is gonna give up all their development rights, or most of their development rights to us, we can now give them still a charitable receipt, but part of that value can be cash. And it used to be some of these ranchers would come to us and say, I wanna do an easement, and we'd say, well, that's great, we're gonna give you a charitable receipt for $5 million. And the rancher would say, how am I gonna use a charitable receipt for $5 million? I don't have any income, right? And this is also back when, you know, BS, pre, Post-BSE, not only did they not have you know, any income to use that, but the cattle prices were depressed. 
And so now we can say, I'm, I'm gonna give you a, a $4 million charitable receipt, which you probably still will have trouble using, but I'm gonna be a million dollars cash. And that's, that's, that's an extreme example. And I, I'm using the big numbers here, but in some cases, these conservation easements, the value can be $100,000, where the property is worth 200, and they've agreed to put no development on it, so now it's worth 100, and we try and compensate them for the difference. And so they range in value from 50 to 5 million, some of these easements that we're doing with people. But this, this program is not out of tax dollars, it's out of money from public land that was sold and now has to be redirected to conserve land, if that makes sense. I mean, it's still, it still belongs to Albertans, but it's, it's trying to offset the sale of public land. And that's one source of our funding. We still apply to foundations and individuals and all types of different sources. And that's very project-specific funding, which means it can only go to certain things for certain projects. So it doesn't cover necessarily my overhead or a lot of those other expenses. That was another very long-winded answer. My apologies. Hi, my name is Knut Peterson. Uh, thanks very much for coming down here. Thanks, Knut. Justin, that was a very fitting topic, especially ahead of uh, Leroy Littlebear's talk about bisons next week. Uh, my question relates to First Nations people, by the way. Um, do you have a relationship or do you work with the First Nations land and all that kind of stuff? Right, so we don't, and, I'll, and I'll, I'll give you some background on that, um, primarily because First Nations land is managed under a whole host of complex uh, relationships and oversight, and so SALT was really established to work on private lands. Now, more and more, SALT is starting to look at how we contribute to the, the big picture landscape conservation. And so we're trying to partner with Cows and Fish, Old Man Watershed Council, Y2Y, whoever is looking at the big picture and saying, where can we contribute the most? And I think when you look at uh, First Nations lands in Southern Alberta, a lot of them do contain really high ecological value in terms of water and wildlife habitat. And so I think where those partnerships might be an opportunity is where we could look at doing easements adjacent to First Nations lands that would enhance and buffer and support the ecological value of that area. Um, but in terms of direct relationships right now, because what we do contractually and what we do on the landscape is, is so, in a way, separate, unfortunately, um, we don't have any of those relationships. Leona Jacobs, I have two questions, Cheryl. I hope you let them <laughs> go by. Um, the first one has to do with some confusion I have after reading, I guess resulting from some reading I've done with the Nature Conservancy business. And so is there a limit on this trust? Is there a timeline that it expires on or is it in perpetuity forever and ever? And the second question is what's the smallest unit of land that you've put into a trust? Both, both very good questions. So the way that our conservation easements are established right now, they are in fact in perpetuity. And so you, as a landowner, if you decide to do an easement, you are deciding to put that land in an easement forever. You can transfer it to your kids, you can sell it, but that easement will remain on title. Now, perpetuity is a very long time. And under the Ecological Gifts Program uh, through Environment Canada, there are provisions for what they call change of use, which means 50, 100 years down the road, we don't know what's gonna happen. But the idea is that if you did wanna change something in the easement, you would have to show that it's not gonna negatively impact the conservation values. And that SALTS would actually have to go with the landowner back to Environment Canada and get approval for that change. Now we do have in our easements, we can work in 
exemptions to the restrictions. So someone says, I want to retain a building site. I have a big ranch, and it could, in theory, hold 30 houses, but I want to retain the right for two houses in these locations. So we can actually work those exemptions into the restrictions, but at the end of the day, it has to, to still support the ecological values of the land. So uh, your first question was in perpetuity. Your second question was, right, the smallest parcel. So this is a big challenge, and, and actually Connie just asked me the same question. The Nature Conservancy, rightly so, focuses on big parcels. And that's because big parcels have a lot of ecological value. It's also because the cost of us doing an easement on a small parcel is almost the same in terms of time and effort as a very big parcel. And the funding we get for a very small parcel is much less than a big parcel. And so as organizations, we're kind of forced towards parcels that we can actually get the funding for and make work. And what that means is a lot of those small parcels get left out. And so that's where SALT and other smaller land trusts will often do smaller parcels. When I say smaller parcels, I mean like a quarter section, 80 acres. Like, and if we're doing smaller parcels like that, they need to be in a riparian area or in a critical wildlife corridor. If they're simply just a piece of grassland in the middle of thousands of acres of intact grassland, a quarter section, it can be very hard for us to justify. But we do an assessment of what is the threat what is the ecological value? What is the risk to our organization long-term in terms of maintaining that easement? And then we decide. But typically, organizations like ours are more inclined to do smaller parcels than, say, NCC. Um, <clears throat> Terry Shellington. Thank you very much for your presentation. It's very helpful. Um, I have a big picture question, and it goes back to those slides you presented around the population growth and uh, uh, where the population is in southern Alberta. And uh, I know this is an area of, uh, uh, with modest uh, water resources, and we're told the glacial melt is in decline. Mm -hmm. And I wonder, how do, how do we, and, go, and cities gobble up huge amounts of water, I wonder how, do, how does this water-challenged uh, part of the world support a city of, of a million and, and uh, 100,000 and so on, and is there, in projecting in the future, any limit to the amount of uh, pop population that this uh, area and its water supply can sustain? And that is a very good and big and complex question, which it would probably justifies a whole another uh, session and presentation. But I, I think some of the answers to that are that we need to be a lot more strategic about planning. So where we put our population, where we concentrate development in terms of the health of the watershed. We obviously need to focus on conservation, which the City of Lethbridge and OWC and others are working on. We need to manage the landscape for water. I think the recognition, though, that we're moving towards is we have to actually start to manage the landscape for water. And like you said, we're in a, we're in a water-constrained area with a growing population. And so I think around planning decisions and development decisions, we have to start to actually put that layer of the water picture to think about how does this impact water long term. And unless we start doing that on all these different decisions and all these different planning efforts, I don't know if you can achieve what you're, you're hoping to. So it's really important. As, as moderator, I'm going to pull rank and ask you a question. Oh, great. Justin, I'm wondering if you can provide examples of where urban municipalities have linked their water to the source and how they what kind of arrangements they set up to uh, protect source waters? Sure. So, and, and this is where sort of I, I concluded was this idea that there's an opportunity now to have urban centers like Lethbridge actually get directly involved in strategies around source water protection. 
there's been a lot of efforts in the US in some big cities where they've been very proactive, huge cities like New York and I think Seattle, where they've looked at their source waters and said, holy smokes, we've got to be engaged in protecting this because if we're not, it's going to be a disaster for us. They've actually gone and bought land. They've made investments in infrastructure. They've been very, very aggressive in terms of managing their source waters. That hasn't happened in Alberta that I'm aware of, probably because we haven't got to as dire of a situation. But the city of Calgary actually just released a source water protection plan. It's very high level. But what it does is it takes the, the mindset from we're going to manage within our municipal boundaries for stormwater and sewer and water treatment to say we've got to start looking at strategic partnerships in the source waters. We've got to talk to municipalities, and they're doing that to some extent, but more actively talk to municipalities, talk to partners like SALTS, Cows and Fish, other land trusts, and start to facilitate projects that protect the city's source water long term. So it's, a, it's an early conversation in, Al in Alberta. It's been happening in some parts of the world for years and years where they've gotten very aggressive about protecting their source water. Thanks. Uh, my question is quite related to this. Um, what is your name, please? Jason Stuka. Um, I've done some research on ecosystem services, so this is really... Uh, I've done some research on ecosystem services and the values of them. And, of course, there's values that go beyond monetary, but... Um, conservation and biodiversity, I would argue, is, a, is sometimes neglected for development and in, in, uh, industry, especially here in Alberta. I think many of, of us in this room would agree on that. What, has anyone out there done sort of a monetary assessment? You're talking about s protecting source water for, say, Lethbridge, for Calgary. Um, there's a monetary value connected to this as well, too. We talked about, someone asked a question about St. Mary's for irrigation. Um, have you, or do you know anyone else who's kind of put some of these figures out there and then done predictions of impacts? If we lose those biodiversity areas, how much is that going to cost us, um, and so forth? So the whole issue around um, quantifying the value of ecological goods and services is obviously a very, very complex one, and there's been a, a lot of effort around this, academic effort, and the challenge that we have is that in any given watershed, on any given landscape, quantifying, for example, a financial value of biodiversity or a financial value of water services is a very, very difficult calculation to do. And it's so highly variable depending on whatever acre you look at, right? So even within this acre of land versus the adjacent acre, the stored soil carbon will be different because there'll be slightly different soils, geology, vegetation. And so whenever you get to talking about quantifying the value of ecological goods and services, you have to do it at a very high level, which isn't a bad thing. We could start to say that if you fragment this much area within this part of the watershed, you're likely going to impact water quality by this much, which would cost you this much to treat. We have not done that work because it's, it's really hard to do that science in a way that's credible, um, and it is so site-specific. We're getting some of those examples now. So the City of Calgary in the Source Water Protection Plan said, we're very good right now at uh, getting rid of turbidity, so solids in the water from runoff. But organic compounds like herbicides, pesticides, oil, those sorts of things, we're actually not very good at getting out of the water. So if in our source waters we get more and more houses with more and more stormwater runoff, with more and more gas and oil and herbicides and pesticides and those sorts of things, the city of Calgary estimates they'll have to upgrade their water treatment facility. I think it's a 400, I think it was 480 million or 400 million dollars. The numbers are in there. but. It's almost easier when you, have, when you look at what is the direct cost to treat dirty water. 
I would love it if Salts could say, if I protect that acre, it's worth this many dollars of water services and this many dollars of biodiversity. We're not there yet, and we're a long way off. And, and a lot of landowners I go to would say, well, why don't you pay me for the ecological goods and services annually? I don't want to do an easement in perpetuity. So give me $400 a year for the wildlife habitat and the watersheds. And that's not an easy thing to do. It's a very, very complex thing to understand. So I think we should keep working on it um, and try and get to that quantification of ecological goods and services, but we are a long way off right now. Good question. Bev Mundell-Atherstone, back for my second question. First, thank you for the answer to the previous question. Some other things that we can't get out of the water are antidepressants, um, antibiotics, and estrogens. Right. So that could add to your, your yes. uh, thing. Okay, um, I wonder if you can go back to a slide that you had where on, I think it's before this one, it's where there's a great deal of, or that one, yes. Sorry. Where this there's a great deal of orange and red yes. next to the mountains. And what was your criteria for number one, the red and the orange? So maybe I'll, if you'll allow me, because I, I know some of the folks in the room here are saying, Justin, why did you show that slide? It's so confusing. I agree, it's a very confusing map. Um, but maybe I'll just sort of walk you through, because this is, is a recent project, and I, I think there's real value to this. I've been frustrated for a long time that in our work, we haven't been able to spatially represent areas that are important for water. I have grizzly bear habitat, winter ungulate range, species at risk, but if someone says, what's the most important area for water? I say, well, by the creeks, by the rivers, but not all areas by the creeks and by the rivers are created equal. So this, this was an effort, and it's not perfect, to say if you take the areas, if you take precipitation, so where the water falls, and how much falls on the landscape, you take slope, so where the water runs off, and if it's, if it's broken up, fragmented, it runs off dirty and more quickly. Where the, the geology and the soils cause more erosion. And where there's native vegetation, which tends to hold the, the water because of deep roots. And where you're close to riparian areas, so creeks. And so on, these, on this map, the simplest way to say it is if you're close to a river or a creek and you have native vegetation and you've got a slope that's steep enough that someone could still build a road or a house on it, so not so steep that no one's gonna do anything and leave it alone. Those are areas of at risk. And if you develop those areas, it's gonna impact our water quality. And so the areas that are orange and red uh, are those areas that we're saying you wanna avoid disturbing or you wanna plan effectively around. And this map, you can zoom in down to a quarter section level. We have that detail so that I can go and say which quarter section is most important. This is a very macro level. But if you, if you look at, you're right, the mountains, there's lots of orange and red in the mountains. And so I will go back to this, this next slide, where if you roll that all up, the blue and the medium blue and light blue are the areas that have the highest value, with dark blue being the most important. And what you'll see is the new Castle Park comes out all dark blue. Now we know that. They've talked about the Castle Park as being important for water. But this analysis says, if you disturb that area in the Castle Park, it's gonna impact your water quality and your runoff. You also look at the Livingston north of the Crow's Nest Pass and the Porcupine Hills. Well, this analysis says those are areas that are important for Lethbridge's water. And so let's think about how we plan for roads and development and various activities because it's going to have an impact. Thank you. Thanks. Hello, thanks for your talk. My name is Michelle Ensman. I am wondering if you have a huge lineup of ranchers who want to participate or if it is rather difficult to find participants in the project. Good question. You know what? It's getting better. I'm actually busier. We, we, I've been in this role now. This is my fourth year. 
and it's getting busier every single year. And there's a whole bunch of things influencing that. I think there's more awareness. I think there's actually this trend of a generation of ranchers who are leaving the ranch, and they're either handing it on to their kids, or if their kids don't want a ranch, they're selling the ranch. But they don't like the idea of selling the ranch and having it carved up into small pieces. And so they're looking at options to keep it intact, extract a little bit of the equity through these, through these conservation, these incentives I can provide through SALTS, um, but, but be able to sell or pass on the ranch as an intact ranch, like it's been sometimes for generations for that family. So we're seeing an increase in activity. We're also getting more strategic. So that's the whole goal of, of these exercises, is in the past, SALTS was opportunistic. We just said, if a rancher comes to us, let's do an easement. Now we're saying, if a rancher comes to us, we'll do an easement, but we have to make sure that land is of really high ecological value. And then now we're actually going out and targeting folks. So we'll say, let's approach ranchers within sub-basin 24, which is really high watershed priority. Let's go meet with them and say, look, you have this amazing landscape that supports really high water quality, and we'd like to work with you if you're interested. And here's how the process works. And, and so we still do opportunistic easements, but we also do a lot more strategic work now where we go out and we target those areas of highest value. And we are busy, and we're getting busier, so. SALTS had a staff of between one and two for the first 15 years, and now we have a massive staff of three. <laughs> so we're just, we're just, we're cooking with gas, which I'm really excited about. <laughs> Well, we're right, we're right on time. We've run out of questioners lined up at the microphone, and we've run out of time. I'm going to put you on the spot, Justin. Uh, can you give us one take-home question or message that you'd like everybody to think about based on the presentation and the questions you've received? Sure. Probably, probably a message is easier than a question. Um, or I could do... Uh, message formed as a question. Uh, I think really what, what I'd like you to take home today and then ask yourself is how do we connect the action and the efforts between urban centers and these, these rural areas? Because I think there still is a disconnect. And I see that in my, I sort of have one foot in both. I, I work with ranchers and I, I do some ranching myself, but I also live in the city. And I often see these disconnects between values and views. And the values are very similar, but there's often some misunderstandings around how you get there. We're trying to achieve the same goals, but often urban folks think rural folks should do this, and rural folks think urban folks should do that. So I guess I would encourage you to try and think about and understand those rural perspectives and think about how people in urban centers can participate and contribute to this landscape conservation uh, in a meaningful way. So I hope that's helpful. Great. Well thought. Justin, when you're on the spot. Thank you very much. I'd like you to join me in Thank clapping you. and thanking Justin.